It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I'm sitting here with today's guest, who I just asked how to pronounce her name, and she gave me the Americanized version, which is Lena, but then she shared how she would say it in Ukrainian. So can you share how to properly pronounce your name? It's Lena, and my full name is Yelena Sergeyevna Sakalenka. Wow, that is so beautiful. I would love to work on my Ukrainian language knowledge. I actually started studying it a little bit because as I shared with you, I have Ukrainian heritage. My mother's father was 100% Ukrainian. And growing up, I didn't fully realize that actually. In 2021, I was visiting my grandfather's brother who's still alive. And I thought it just like all occurred to me as an adult, like, whoa, my great grandparents were full Ukrainian. They immigrated here, like hearing my great grandmother's story of how she came to the States and how she met my great grandfather and how they ended up in Cleveland, Ohio, where that side of my family lives. And then it all started to make sense to me. Some of the things that my mother used to say to me as a child and how important Ukrainian heritage is, but she doesn't speak Ukrainian. As an adult, I developed an interest in just learning some words, and I was a little amazed at how complex the language is. (laughs) And it's so beautiful to hear someone who speaks it natively, as you do, share this. Do you still speak Ukrainian? Does this come up in your family? Have you taught your children? how to speak the language? We have tried to speak Ukrainian. When my first child was born, it was the only language I spoke to her. As she kind of started growing and we recognized some issues we were having, my oldest child's name is Catherine and she's 16 now. Um, She has an autism diagnosis. So with the speech delay, we had quite a bit of a time trying to introduce two languages at once. So I kind of had to let that go and let her focus on the English language since she's going to be living here. And now she can't stop talking. (laughs) But to even have the language in the household, I think is so beautiful. And I've often craved that. Both of my parents have an interest in language. My father studied German. And when I was growing up, he would speak a little bit of German around me. He would visit Germany and he would bring back books and read them to me in German. And to your point, as a kid, it can be very confusing and overwhelming. And I remember being curious, but I didn't want the pressure of having to learn another language, I think. I also have some neurodivergence and that shows up a lot in my learning style. Even my pronunciation, I wonder how much of that has been a challenge my whole life, just the way my brain works. And so I've had to push myself to overcome it. And for instance, I studied French 
in high school and I was never getting good grades because I struggled so much, but I loved it. I was very, very interested in it. I just wasn't great at it. (laughs) And it took actually more immersion into different cultures. I've noticed this a lot where studying something is hard for me, but if I can apply it, if I can be interested in it, or if I can have a reason behind it, it's helped a lot. So I'm curious, as you've seen your daughter develop, are there contexts in which she seems like she's leaning into the language or is she not at that stage yet? It's actually quite funny. Just yesterday, my middle child, my son, is also starting to study French. And Catherine typed at some point, we were at a conference and it was a typing conference and she typed that she would like to go to France. And we had no idea where France even came from. She said Paris. And eventually I asked her, I was like, Catherine, why Paris? She goes, mom, for the food. She's heard about the crepes and the the cheese. And so we've been to France twice. Because of Catherine, it's kind of a long journey to that wish that she had. And now she's remembering French words. She's remembering Russian and Ukrainian words. And it just comes out in the most unexpected times. That is so neat. And isn't it beautiful, first of all, as a parent, to be able to fulfill a wish that your child has like that? I mean, travel is something that I feel is such a privilege and to have the resources to have people in your life that can guide you through that or provide it to you. I mean, that to me is something I try not to overlook with my family because I also had the privilege of seeing them travel a lot and then inspire that within me. And now it's become a really big part of my life more and more. And I studied in Europe too when I was in college. And that was just one of the greatest things as your brain is developing just understanding different cultures and immersing yourself in them to better understand other people. And that was part of what drew me to you, like reading about your story, given my Ukrainian heritage, but also the timeliness of what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Have you taken your children to the Ukraine or how often have you visited since you were a child yourself? I have visited yearly before I had children. That was kind of a a routine with us. And my husband came with me several times. I also have a sister who visited. Our grandmother was alive at that point. But I have not taken my children. And partly because when they were really young, there aren't really car safety mechanisms for young children like we have here. They've probably emerged on the scene recently. But when my children were young, it was not there yet. And I was waiting for them to get a little bit older. And then the climate changed and it just kind of became a safety concern. And so we've been to Europe, we've been close, but never in Ukraine with them. And how does that feel given what's been happening in the country? Do you feel a yearning to be back there? Have you been able to get involved with what's going on? Do you still have family out there that is experiencing firsthand what's happening? I do. So I have some extended family that lives in Kiev or on the outskirts of Kiev. And my father lives on one of the quieter corners of the city. And his area has not been affected in terms of actual 
war, but obviously has been affected in terms of being able to get around the city with public transportation and the inflation and the prices of everything going up. And now this uncertainty of what's going to happen in the winter and the heating and the ability for the city to survive. I hear that people are now looking for almost a more primitive arrangement for living that includes fire burning stoves and things that you wouldn't normally see in a high rise apartment building. And there's just a lot of uncertainty. And that also lands back into the name of your podcast. This could be uncomfortable. And the uncertainty on one hand is a discomfort, but at the same time, through all of the journey and through all of the struggles and things that have come up in my life, you kind of learn to be comfortable with the discomfort because you know that that's where the growing happens. And just kind of isolating to the comfort of routine means that there's not a lot of growth. And that's kind of what I look for when I make peace with the fact that things are uncomfortable. It's beautifully said. And it's interesting because speaking of privilege, in the States, there's been a lot of privilege, at least recently, although it feels like we're kind of teetering on the edge of this, of not knowing what that war experience is like that they're having in the Ukraine. So it's easy to feel disconnected from it, I believe, because we haven't had to live that way, at least not for a while. Although sometimes it feels like that's right around the corner for us and that can feel very uncomfortable. And one of the greatest books that I've read is, is it Man's Search for Meaning? Victor Frankl. Exactly. And I think about that as you're describing what's happening in that war state, because that's how that book developed in such a horrifying, heartbreaking setting for that book, but which is is not fiction. <laughs> it's all true. And the way that Victor was able to find meaning in some of these horrifying experiences around him and you know, whether that was his way of mentally surviving that, or you're going to make the most out of what you have. It sounds like a bit like what you're describing here of witnessing being part of being connected to some of the more awful sides of humanity, and still making the most out of life. This is a perfect example of where, you know how the light walks along the darkness and you wouldn't be able to fully appreciate the light without having experienced or seen the darkness. As you were speaking, I was kind of reminded in my own head about those three fundamental things that humans struggle with, which is the abandonment and separation, the idea of worthiness, am I worthy to be here on this planet even, and this inability and struggle to trust and surrender And if you look at those three points and put that lens of a time of war on it, you can see how the abandonment and separation has to be filled with people who are right next to you, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, living in that tragedy, living in that moment, and in a way, kind of banding together to form a community and to survive and to be closer because of that experience worthiness, you absolutely have to address that because if you're going to survive that extreme situation, you have to believe that you're worthy. 
And then this trust and surrender for me in my own personal life, because I didn't come through that specific situation. For me, it was cancer. And I came face to face with this idea of surrender and trust, because when something large is coming at you, you kind of have to respond in a way that allows you to thrive through it. And what better way than to recognize that, you know, you didn't create yourself. There's a force that's living and breathing you that's bigger than you. And that is what I use to be able to come through that experience. And I hope that people who are in the midst of a wartime situation can find that too. So in essence, those darkest times give us the most widely open opportunities to address those really deep issues that some of us may not be able to address in peaceful times. Wow, that is so profound and eloquently said. And I just feel in awe of your ability to not only communicate that, but to embody that. And one thing, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, is that I feel a bit astounded at like reading through your history. I mean, you mentioned cancer. We talk about what's going on in your home country right now, but you also survived Chernobyl. I can't even believe that it happened so recently. I I looked up the year, you know, like it feels like something that happened so long ago, but it was 1986. Is that right? I was seven years old. Yes. It was May. It was springtime. And after going through a long winter, spring always feels memorable in that part of the world. And school was getting ready to break for summer. My mother was a physician and she practiced in four different specialties. She was a pediatrician, a cardiologist, a neurologist, and a sports medicine doctor. And one day after coming home from school, we lived in this tiny little apartment with our dog on the third floor, and we shared a bathroom and a kitchen with four other families. My mother never looked sad or in any way tired per se. She had this bubbly personality and she was always the life of the party and there was always a smile on her face. And that day she came home and she sat down on that little stool to take off her shoes and something was different. She looked like she had shifted into this way of being that I have not seen before as a seven-year-old. And again, I'm observing, I have no idea what's going on, but because she worked at a hospital, because she was connected with a lot of that coming through and it was kept secret for a time, I kind of felt the shift. And then she told me, I don't want you to go outside. And it's fascinating to me as a child at seven years old, because we live in this tiny little room And most of my living was done outside because there was really no room to live inside. And my mom tells me not to go outside and I don't understand. And the next day she comes home with this box with a wand and it makes chirping noise and she measures the dog. We had a Scottish setter. Her name is Dana and she lived with us in that tiny little room on the third floor. And then she says, Dana is going to have to live with somebody who has an outdoor arrangement in their home so that she can roam free outside without having to go back and forth to our little room with, at this point, 
I can only assume that there was a significant amount of radiation that was coming in with a dog, and my mother was concerned. Looking back at my granted very childlike experiences, that was the time when I had to come to grips with the fact that something huge that you cannot see, that you cannot feel, taste, or smell can come and turn your life upside down and become something that you kind of have to grapple with, even though it's not a sensory experience. And then it led me to major in radiation sciences later on for my college, because that's kind of what I do when something big and hurtful comes at me. I really want to understand it with my rational mind. And I've had to shift that with my latest grapple with going back to cancer. But for the longest time, my rational mind was the place where I went every time something big, major, and um, hurtful happened. <laughs> uh, as I said, I feel just in awe of, of knowing that you experienced that firsthand and the way that you're able to articulate it and tell this beautiful story around like your experience as a young child witnessing this and the details that you noticed about your mother's shift and how you learn to cope with it through your rational mind. I mean, I imagine I would have had a similar reaction because that I tend to spring into action, think like, okay, how can my brain understand this so that I can find a solution so I can survive this? But it's interesting that you point out that because if I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like maybe the rational side doesn't feel like always the right answer? Is that how I am interpreting that from you? You are so perceptive on this. And it's not about the rational side not being the right answer. It's about the rational side being useful only in certain situations. And you can solve a rational problem with a rational solution. However, as humans, we are an emotional being. So when you start applying a rational solution to an emotional experience, that's where that breakdown occurs and you end up struggling trying to figure out if that's the right thing or not. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to go back to you as this little girl. How did you feel like your mother was responding when you're detailing her, the expression on it? I mean, I feel like you were witnessing an emotional reaction and that was followed by a rational reaction. And even as you were talking about the dog, for instance, it sounded like your mother had to make this choice to protect you and her to do something about the dog that probably her emotional side would rather not do, but her rational side took over. That was, it's interesting that it's coming out now and as you're speaking, I'm gaining some more understanding into this. My mother was a physician. She was a scientist. And that is how a scientific brain works. You make a decision based on rationality. And oftentimes, you hardly ever tap into those emotions. Because in that moment, in that time, you either don't have time or you don't have the bandwidth to deal with both sides of it. And going further into what happened later with my mother, I feel like that's the first glimpse of 
that disconnect between your heart and your mind that people tend to have when they're immersed in science. And I discovered that disconnect in my own cancer journey where my mother didn't have that chance. That's so observant of you. Do you feel like that to see that comparison about how each of you dealt with cancer, was that coming out of witnessing your mother and deciding to do things differently? Or do you think that you just inherently, was it like a personality difference? Was it a life experience difference between the two of you that gave you a different way of handling something like that? When my mother was diagnosed, and this was around 1995-96, I was close to 16 years old, and I was studying as an exchange student here in the United States. And my mother received her diagnosis. And through different channels, acquaintances, and just miraculous turn of events, a hospital in Florida decided to sponsor my mother to come and get treated in the United States. This is where the setting starts. I am here in the States and I get a phone call around Christmas time in the middle of my exchange year saying, I am coming to the States for treatment. Then what happened was when she arrived into the same city, we were in the same city together, I became her translator, her communicator, because she did not speak English. At 16 years old, the journey that I took with my mother through cancer was the most intimate and involved it ever could be because I was there for every doctor's appointment. I was there for every test. I was there to tell her to hold her breath during her CT scan because it had to be translated. And not only was it just an observer, it was this intricate, involved view into how that journey went. And this is about 20 years prior to my own diagnosis. And that's where I feel like my view and take on the circumstances are a bit different than even my sister's and my father, who wasn't here in the States during that time. And I think from that, I was able to draw those contrasts and comparisons that you mentioned 20 years later when my own diagnosis came. I wasn't really that enlightened at any point in that time. It was just a matter of here's what you have now and how are you going to deal with it? And my first thought was rational mind. And then I started getting these images, these glimpses of the experiences and thinking, okay, this, so this is how we did it then. None of us liked the outcome. We need to do it differently this time. And speaking of doing things differently, from what you shared with me, it sounds like you had the option of the more conventional, maybe Western approach versus the integrative, which I often associated with more of an Eastern approach. I'm not quite sure if, if you would feel the same way, but I guess with your perspective, having moved to the United States, it's interesting actually, because so many people talk about the United States as being the land of the free and access to everything and so much privilege, which absolutely does. But yet on the medical side of it, it seems like we're way behind what a lot of other countries do. And we have a vastly different approach that almost doesn't seem to be working. I'm curious, do you have that perspective on the States, given how you grew up and given your experiences personally with cancer and your mother's and the contrast that you've seen between that? 
if you asked me 20 years ago, and even not 20, maybe going back before my daughter was born, I would say the United States healthcare system is vastly superior. And that is because at that point in time, my mindset was pretty much set and solidified in this rational mind explanation for humanity, that everything had an answer. And obviously, the machines and the technology that we have access to in the United States is vastly superior. And if you disregard that aspect of a human that has to do with your emotions and your ability to synthesize your own health through living, when you disregard that part, the technology is all you have left. And in my journey through my daughter's diagnosis first and discovering some things that technology and conventional medicine was powerless to help me with, and then starting that process of finding other ways of connecting to help my daughter, it all carried over. It's just a beautiful way of looking back and seeing how every single struggle, every single hardship, everything that you might consider a terrible disaster (laughs) ended up turning into sort of a guiding light towards being able to survive my own cancer and then also getting to that place where I am able to open up my family unit that I have been pouring into for all these years and actually have something to share with other people. Beautiful to hear the way that you speak about these things. And it has me thinking about this technology point. I haven't really thought about it that way. I'm very drawn to technology. I always have been. There's something so fascinating to me and powerful and exciting about technological developments. But as I've gotten older, I see the pros and the cons very differently because they certainly give us access. They are able to do incredible things. I mean, you and I are talking through technology right now. And I look at all the things I I have in place that I've set up in order to have a conversation like this. And I'm very grateful for it. That's incredible. But we're also finding as a society right now, there's a lot of drawbacks to the same exact technology, the overconsumption, the over-reliance on it, the place that it has in our lives, and the emphasis on stepping away from it and spending more time in nature, stepping away from it and spending more time in person with other people. You know, you mentioned the power of community and relationships and how easy it is to distract ourselves and to numb ourselves to some of the things that we actually really need and we forget the importance. And it'll be interesting to see as technology becomes more and more prevalent and how children are growing up very differently now, which I imagine you think a lot about as a parent, just that your point about balancing out that rational and that conventional and the technological approach to things versus Well, how would you describe what is on the other side of that? What is kind of the opposite of that? It goes back to that point that we were talking about as one of the fundamental struggles as humans we all face is this idea of worthiness. And as you talk about technology, and this came into play with me when I first landed in the United States and I didn't speak English at all. 
And I was sitting in a classroom and I looked over and I automatically thought that no matter who was sitting next to me, that they were smarter than me because they spoke English and I didn't. So it's almost like that parallel where we look at technology and we see all the amazing things that it can do. And we automatically assume that we are less than. To me, that could be, it's so far from the truth. Because as a human being, and from the scientific point of view, and from the spiritual point of view, I cannot tell you anything that comes from technology that could be more powerful than we are. Just the power of thought, the power of intention, the power of being able to decide and have a choice in your actions and building your future, it simply cannot come from a synthetic form. And that is probably the most important thing to address with our younger population. It's not the technology is bad. It's that we are worthy and powerful and are capable much more than it is. That is so important to hear because if you break it down, it seems like technology certainly has helped us, but it seems like a lot of the worthiness elements and challenges that people are facing right now maybe even stem from technology. I mean, I'm, I'm processing this in real time and thinking about the comparison issues that a lot of people have right now. I mean, they are often related to social media because we are exposed to people all around the world through technology, more people have developed a sense of unworthiness because they're able to compare themselves to many more people than they would without technology, for instance. And so I'm sure we could go on and on and thinking through all of that. And then there's that extreme response people have where they just want to abandon technology altogether. And that kind of reminds me of something I know you're also passionate about, balance, and on your website, you write at the very top, harmony, not balance. And I'm curious what that means for you, whether that's related to technology or not, but as a kind of a segue, why did you write that at the very top of your site? Why is that so key to you? So this is really something that's emerged sort of recently because I have talked about balance before. And as a scientist... I think balance is good. You know, you put one weight on one side, the other one on the other side, and it balances out. That's great. But if you look at natural processes, the life itself, it's not about sameness. It's about harmony. When you have that balance, there is inherently no movement. There's no growth because everything's balanced. It's not in motion. However, when things are in harmony, you're able to draw out the best in the moment for your situation from the best source and leave the others be for the moment. And it's not balanced, but yet it is harmonized to your own current experience. That shift is happening. And my passion is mostly along the lines of growth and growth cannot happen when you're in balance. I'm writing that down. Growth cannot happen when you're in balance. I'm going to pause here for a moment to take a very brief period of time to thank the show's sponsor, Athletic Greens. 
they make this wonderful all-in-one powder that's virtually nutritional insurance. And to tie that into this conversation, I think of this as a really great way to be mindful and intentional about what you put in your body without overstressing. It's an all-in-one that contains vitamins, minerals, probiotics, adaptogens. I take it almost every single day at home when I'm traveling. Love the taste of it. It's low in sugar. And it's designed to support better sleep quality, recovery, mental clarity, and alertness. It's also recommended by professional athletes and trusted by leading health experts. And the best part is, beyond the all-in-one element, is that it costs less than $3 a day. So for a delicious tasting green juice, it's really affordable and convenient. And because they're sponsoring this show, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of their immune-supporting vitamin D, which I also take every day, along with five free travel packs of this AG1 green powder that I've been talking about. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash wellevator. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And there you can take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link is in the description of this episode along with the show notes. So go check it out. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Now back to the show. That's so interesting because I feel like so many people go to that word balance, or maybe they even confuse harmony with balance. Do you find that to be the case? I think my first thought on this subject came to when I was considering motherhood and this idea of how can you balance? You know, everybody says, let's balance your career and your home life. If you balance your career and your home life, then ostensibly you're doing half your energy to one and half your energy to the other. And in my personal experience, it cannot be true because when your babies are little, you are totally devoting more of your energy towards your home life than you do towards your work life. And when they get to a place where mine are almost have gotten to, you're able to harmonize that in a different way, but 50-50 doesn't work. That is just so interesting. I love that phrase, 50-50 doesn't work. And that just goes against so much of what people commonly share as advice. I am deeply fascinated. As a society, as human beings, we tend to hear the same advice repeated over and over again. And then we start to take it as fact. Anytime someone can debate it or share a different perspective on it. That feels perhaps radical or people want to reject it. It feels hard to shift our mentality. But I've learned over time to start questioning things that I hear repeated over and over again as fact, because I'm wondering like, who stated that? Why did they state that? And how long ago? (laughs) Because we're developing so much thanks to things like technology. I mean, a a huge benefit of technology is this access to information, tools to do deeper research and to share it with one another and to find it. And we see things like psychology constantly looking at at it differently. I mean, you mentioned your daughter being diagnosed with autism. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. And even something like that, in the past 20 years, we've seen 
major shifts, even in the terminology that is used around autism. Yes. It's interesting because once again, when you mention a diagnosis of some kind, when I first started addressing what was happening and with her, things were pretty traumatic and dramatic in her early years. And you kind of land in that same place of worthiness because the most significant and tremendous shift with her and me through the journey was when I started being able to presume without a shadow of a doubt her undisputed and complete competence. And the minute I flipped the script to where I believe that she's capable of doing whatever it is that she wants to do, whatever it is that is in front of her in the present moment, then she started responding in the way that told me that she really is. And that cycle of, I believe that you are worthy and I completely see, have seen in my experiences and will continue to see that even if I am faced with someone who doesn't believe in their own worthiness, if I sit there and hold space for them and know in my heart with my entire being that they can, that some of that will transfer to them and they can start moving in that direction and growing that for themselves. It's almost like sharing that light. Lighting another person's candle doesn't diminish your own. And believing in someone else's worthiness, honestly, to me, it even makes your own feel more present. Another beautiful statement there. It's so helpful to just pause and to take in some of your words, Lena, because you've learned so much. I mean, things that you've been describing, I just feel like you've gone through multiple lifetimes. Do you feel that way about yourself? I mean, because like, just to break down like the big things that you've gone through, that you've witnessed, that you've learned, it just feels like, how have you done this all in your life so far? It's really interesting because very recently, just last week, I went through this exercise and somebody mentioned it to me and I decided to do it. If you take your age and you divide it by five, so you have those chunks of years, for me, it's about eight or nine years. And go through each piece. So for me, like from age when I was born until about nine years old, and you look at some of those pivotal moments, those traumatic and dramatic moments, and you kind of write them all down in order and look at all the things that you have come through and especially zero in on the lessons, the growth, the opposite side of trouble that you've experienced It almost becomes this guiding light and your ability to have confidence in being able to handle whatever comes at you increases with time and with this realization of, so I counted 12. I have 12 items on my list through the years that I considered big in those chunks of time. And in the beginning, when I first did it, I could only see eight of them as a clear positive turn of events that something good came out of this bad. And it took me about a week to equalize and make all 12 of them something that I have gained out of difficulty. Chernobyl was one of them. (laughs) It certainly was. Do any of them stand out as 
bigger than another? Like, do you find yourself kind of ranking them or are they just all equal? Do they have their own sense of harmony for you? They are at this point. So when I first received my cancer diagnosis, this was four years ago, and the automatic reaction is let's fight this. There's this paradigm of we've got to fight for your life. And in my heart of hearts from the very beginning, it was never about a fight. It was about what is this thing here to tell me and to teach me? And how am I going to come out on the other end with the maximum amount of goodness from this? And looking at each and every one of those points in my life at this point from my age, they are all equal and they've all taught me something. But the most important lesson, I feel like it's not about this fight against the struggles and the bad things that come at you. It's about harmonizing them. It's about getting to a place where you can extract the goodness while still grieving and mourning the part that were hurtful. But then at the same time, it kind of catapults you to a new level of experience when you're able to move through that. Because every time you do something difficult, the next time you have more confidence and more almost like a muscle that was built up to be able to handle the next thing. Before we started recording, you were sharing with me what you're focused on right now, even just today, you know, because I, I asked you, like, what is lighting you up right now? And, and you brought up purpose. And that seems to be such a thread through. I mean, I've heard you use the word worthiness so much. And I'm curious, is honoring your own and other people's worthiness part of your purpose? And if not, what do you feel like today is your purpose? I think the reason I speak about worthiness so much is that's one of the older things that I've addressed in my life that was addressed before 16 years old for me. And my purpose now becomes this drive to convey that message to others because I've had a traumatic thing happen to me before I was 16 years old to address this exact problem. And I consider it a blessing now. Not everyone gets to that point that early in life. And being able to clearly and truly stand in your own worthiness will make for a better world for all of us. Because if we believe we are worthy, we can accomplish all the things that we are here to do. And if we all accomplish things that we are here to do, then we're there. Indeed. And that is incredibly helpful for so many people. Although understanding it, hearing that, I suppose is different than living that and deeply understanding it. So is this what you do in your work, is supporting people and guiding them towards figuring out how to deeply feel, like truly feel worthiness? Because that's tough. It is. It's tough and it's imperative to moving forward to the life that you would love to live. It's not about the life that somebody else would like. It's not about what somebody else thinks you should do. It's about the life that you would truly love to live. And you can only get there when you believe that you are worthy of that. And in my work, what I do is 
obviously I can't place that belief into someone. What I can do is explore and ask some questions similar to what I did myself last week as an exercise of let's list out all of those pivotal points and let's see how they have shaped your life. And let's see how amazing you truly are because you came through them, because you are here, you are on the other side of them. You are speaking to me about growth. And there is no doubt if you really internalize all of the experiences that you've gone through, because <laughs> let's face it, you've gone through every single bad experience in your life with 100% survival rate, right? Because you're here. And just to be able to stop and attend to that, most of the time is enough because we're just so busy and circling back to technology, our, our senses are bombarded with all of these inputs all of the time. And we don't stop and think and notice all the things that we are, that we have done, that we are capable of. I'm going to take a moment to show appreciation for the sponsor of the show, Zencaster. They not only make this episode possible, but they make it so easy for me to record with guests. Behind the scenes, I log in to their super easy platform at Zencaster.com. I create the episode link and send it over to the special guest. They get that link. They show up. We can see each other through video and start recording so easily. And then when we're done, I can download the video and put it up to a platform like YouTube. I can share it on social media. I can even do some editing of it, like taking out filler words, ums and ahs, for example. It has this active speaker detection through AI that automatically detects who's speaking at a time and switches back and forth. And that's been a game changer for me because I've been really behind in uploading YouTube videos for each episode of the show. And now I'm able to catch up through Zencaster's amazing technology. So whether you're just curious about how I do things or you want to use a platform like Zencaster for your own podcasting needs, I had to tell you about it. If you fall into the latter category, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code WellEvatorZen. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. And I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. I really believe it's time to share your story too, which is why I'm mentioning them. So again, that's Zencaster.com slash pricing. That's linked in the show notes of this episode and in the description, along with that code WellEvatorZen, so you can start using it right away. Now back to the episode. Lena, you've given me and hopefully the listeners so many opportunities to stop and think and notice. And I think it's an important reminder to not fall into this comparative trap. Something that you're sharing here are, are, is a tool that anybody could do right now after listening to this episode, which is to sit down and break their life into these chunks and examine the tough times and not try to compare themselves to other people's tough times. Because I, I feel like we do this a lot, like, oh, well, my life is worse than theirs, or, oh, well, they've gone through so much. Who am I to think that I'm struggling? And this is something I think a lot about because 
somebody else might have gone through something relatively worse than you doesn't invalidate the fact that you have had tough times and challenges. And sometimes if we get into that place, we almost like feel like our trauma isn't worthy, (laughs) you know, like, and that gets in the way of us acknowledging our own worthiness or maybe feeds our feelings of unworthiness. I've thought about this a lot over time. Like, who am I to complain when this person has it, quote, much worse than me? And maybe somebody could feel that way after listening to you and hearing, I mean, these huge experiences that you've had certainly could be perceived as relatively worse than the average person. And that's part of what puts me in a state of awe towards you. But I think what you're teaching is not based around that comparison. What you're teaching is guiding each person to examining their own life and tapping into their own worthiness and not looking at it in comparison to others. Am I understanding that right? That is exactly right. And it's interesting because in the world of cancer, that comparison of somebody having things worse than me is so alive and so prevalent because, oh, what stage are you? And how long have you been battling this? Did you have this treatment or did you have that treatment? And to me, what's important to understand is an experience can bring a tremendous amount of understanding. And it is individual up to the person experiencing it to get there. As an example, having cancer is like diving into this pool full of muck. It doesn't matter what stage you are, you are in that pool. And the difference and the survivorship of it depends on you being able to grab that pearl of something that is there to help guide you and help guide others in a way that only you can share and bring it out of that muck with you and just kind of shine that light into the rest of the world. It's not about how bad it was. It's about what you got out of it. And you can get such a deep understanding from mine was my first one was having my dog go live with another family. That doesn't seem extremely traumatic, but it shaped me in a way that cancer did. And it stands on that same level right now. I'm so glad that you highlighted that experience with your dog because I feel like we brushed over it so quickly. And in my mind, I mean, certainly I'm very attached to my dog. If I had to go through that now, I, I that probably would be a defining moment. And I'm curious, how did you move through that pain of saying goodbye to your dog? And what is the lasting impact of that for you? So that was the very first time when I gave into my rational mind and the understanding and the life that I have chosen was being done through the lens of rationality rather than emotion. And it took me into that circle of the scientific way, the way of numbers and formulas and having an explanation for everything. And then I had to go through my entire lifetime and all the things until I got to cancer. And that line was able to shift back into that ultimate connection of mind and heart, conventional and integrative, that you don't have to pick a side because you can have it all. You can have your cake and eat it too. (laughs) 
because we all take our experiences in harmony and that it's a beautiful way to kind of wrap it together because I can take some conventional wisdom and I can take some integrative wisdom and I put it together and it works just right for me. And for you, it would be in a different ratio, right? And what tends to happen in the world now is you're either all conventional or you're all integrative. And if you pick one, then you can't have anything of the other. And as a challenge, I believe that you can and you absolutely should, and I don't like that word, but integrating those experiences and experiencing and doing things that equal the right thing for the individual is where healthcare is headed. I believe that to be successful in helping other people, you must be open-minded and you must be aware of something other than your rational mind and your ability to measure and your ability to quantify and believe in that worthiness and the power that lives and drives a human being, that we are an infinite being having a human experience. And in as much of the powerful side that we have, we also have this human side that is prone to making mistakes and that those are okay and they don't take away from our ability to be infinite. At the same time, it's such a confusing and beautiful and astonishing concept to me. (laughs) I think those words, beautiful and astonishing, are things that I would like to use for this conversation and getting to know you, Lena, because that's how I feel. I just am so moved by what you shared today with me and the listener and the way that you express this and you've thought about things and also just the energy in which you hold space. It's so inspiring and calming and just been absolutely lovely. I've used the word awe a lot, and that's the best way that I can describe it. And I'm deeply grateful for that. And I also find myself wondering why you don't have your own podcast. Is that something you've thought about? I mean, what a gift you've just given me and and the listener today. Is it something that you've contemplated? Because you're a natural at this. Whitney, like this whole conversation has been nothing but a synergistic experience to me because just before we got on, my sister called to kind of touch base and she goes, and I mentioned that I was coming on to have this conversation with you. She goes, why don't you do your own? And my answer was, you know, that harmony of being able to do all the things that I do in my life. And it doesn't quite support me learning a whole new way of tech just yet. But it is coming and my website does have a spot for it that is not live or active right now. And I think I will consider this another nudge in that direction. Another awe-inspiring way of expressing your current state. And I will link to your beautiful website, which also gives me that same feeling for anyone who wants to learn more about your work. That'll be linked in the show notes, which has a full transcript. So if you want to go back and re-listen to or or even read for the first time everything that Lena shared today, that is to get all together compiled at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And there will be links to get in touch with Lena. 
to learn more about her, to explore all of the ways that she supports people. And perhaps stay tuned if she does decide to embark upon podcasting and continue sharing this beautiful wisdom. Whatever I can do to support you, I'm here here to help, <laughs> Lena, because I think you have a power about you to teach lessons and do it in a profound, relaxing way. And you have made a, a great impact on me. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have been able to get to know you through this conversation and to be able to share this. It has just been absolutely delightful. And thank you for being open. Thank you for listening and being receptive and for holding space for me and your listeners and for following your heart and what you love to do. My pleasure. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.